1552, six years after the death of Martin Luther, a Wittenberg professor and Lutheran pastor named Georg Major became the catalyst for what would become a major controversy in German Lutheranism. Writing in response to some criticism that he had received, he wrote this. He said, This I confess. I have previously taught and still teach and want to teach my whole life. The good works are necessary for salvation. And I say openly and with clear and plain words that no one will be saved through evil works and no one will be saved without good works. And I say further, whoever teaches otherwise, even an angel from heaven, is accursed. Now, what Georg Major apparently meant by that statement was not to say that he believed that good works earn for us our justification or the forgiveness of sins or eternal life, but rather what he intended in the statement was to say that God has commanded us to do good works and that good works are therefore a necessary part of the Christian life, a necessary part in the life of one who has been saved. And as he understood it, good works were a natural and necessary consequence of saving faith. And one of his concerns was a pastoral concern. He felt that it was necessary to guard Christians against lawless and licentious living that could potentially flow from a misunderstanding of the freeness of salvation that is offered to us in Christ and from a misunderstanding of the freedom that we enjoy as believers in Christ. As one historian summarized it, for major, the phrase good works are necessary for salvation could counter nonchalance about Christian living and admonish Christians not to find security for their sins in a false conception of the gospel. And given his understanding of things, we can certainly at least be sympathetic with his concern. But on the other hand, one of Georg Major's old friends, a man named Nicholas von Amsdorf, took some serious exception to his teaching. Major's words came on the tail end of a few intense years in which Roman Catholics had been militantly seeking to undo the work of the Reformation in Germany. And Amsdorf saw in these words of Major a return to more Roman Catholic modes of thinking in which good works serve to merit or to earn salvation for oneself. As Amsdorf understood it, to say that good works were necessary for salvation was to say that good works were what brought salvation to an individual. And Amsdorf's concern also was pastoral. His fear that when people in the pew heard the phrase, good works are necessary for salvation, that what they would hear is that they needed to get to work in order to earn their salvation, which would be the loss of the gospel altogether. And even though Amsdorf did agree that those who have been born again will fear and love God and that their lives will be filled with good works and that as God's children they are bound to perform good works, later on in the controversy, Amsdorf brought back one of Luther's phrases which said that good works are detrimental to salvation. And what Amsdorf meant was that they're detrimental to salvation, quote, when they became the object of trust and are regarded as contributing to salvation. And he based that position on, uh, for that phrase on verses like Galatians 3.10, where we're told that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. As many who rely on works of the law for salvation are under a curse. And also uh, Philippians 3, 7 through 9, where Paul says that whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And so what should we make of all this? One man says good works are necessary for salvation. Another says 
good works are detrimental to salvation. Both statements are trying to make valid and important points to warn against potential dangers, and yet both statements can cause great confusion and lead to catastrophic misunderstanding if we simply take the statements as such and run with them, completely devoid of all context and nuance. And so we can learn from this controversy that good works are important to the Christian life, for sure, but also that the relationship between good works and salvation must be carefully stated and carefully phrased so as not to confuse anyone. We must maintain that God's commandments are holy, righteous, and good, as Paul says in Romans 7.13, and that as such we are obligated to obey them and therefore obligated to do good works. And we must also maintain that all who rely on works of the law for salvation are under a curse. We have to maintain the truth of both, that our salvation is not by works of righteousness that we have done, and also the truth that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good works, as we find in our text for this morning. And let me just say at the outset, even before we read the passage, that this subject is a really important one for the Christian life. It's really important for us to get this right. We don't want to fall off of the wagon on either side. And I can speak personally and wish for myself that I had had a better grasp of these things 20 or 25 years ago. I think, practically speaking, I understood, okay, yeah, I'm saved by grace and grace alone. And that doesn't mean, however, that I get to completely disregard what God has commanded. But how those two truths came together, I don't feel like I really had a good grasp, as good a grasp on that as I would have like to have. And I, I can remember a, a conversation, either late high school or early college, where I was, was speaking with, with someone who professed to believe, but was not, uh, was not living in a particularly godly way. And I wish that I'd had a better handle on this subject and had been able to, uh, to speak to him more helpfully than I did. And so this is, this is an important subject for us to, to get right. Now, specifically, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verse 8, but in order to set the context, which is very important, we'll begin reading up in Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Two weeks ago, we had looked at the words of verses 3 through 7, which describe this great change which the grace of God brings into the lives of those who believe in Christ. We were once the kind of people described in verse 3, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, and so on. That was us. To borrow the language of Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were living in the lusts of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. By nature, we were children of wrath. But then something truly marvelous and wonderful happened. 
to use the, the language of Titus 3 here, the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Christ came into the world and died for sinners. God saved us not because of anything that we had done or could do or would do, but because of his mercy. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration, causing us to be born again, to be washed clean of all stain of sin through Christ. In the words of verse 7, we were justified by his grace and have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in addition to this washing of regeneration, we've been saved through, through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which is our sanctification, this gracious work which God does in which our corrupted nature is restored so that we die more and more to sin and live more and more unto righteousness. God performs this work in us, not because of us, but because of Christ. This gracious and renewing work is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, and in it we are restored to the image of God. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter or chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. We saw our great sinfulness and then the wonderful grace of God in our salvation. That brings us then to verse 8, which we're considering this morning. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And when Paul speaks here of the trustworthy statement, he seems to have in mind specifically that statement of the gospel that we find in verses 4 through 7. He says this is a trustworthy statement, and his desire is that Titus would speak confidently about this gospel. Put it out there. Speak confidently about it. And why? For what purpose should Titus be speaking confidently about the gospel? Titus should speak confidently, as we find in verse 8, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. He's confidently to speak about the abundant grace of God and the gospel so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. What we see here is that there is this connection between the love and kindness of God appearing, not because of anything that we have done coming to us in the gospel, and also the good deeds of those who have believed God. We've already considered a couple of weeks ago how some of the aspects of this passage run parallel to Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 8 is no different, right? We read together Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 this morning. By grace you're saved through faith, not on account of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then comes verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace through faith and not by works, but the works follow. They must follow. And this is not an optional tack-on for us as believers. Holy living is not something that we can take or leave if you're not interested. It is a requirement. And so as we think about this issue of good deeds or good works today, I'll use the terms interchangeably. They mean the same thing. We need to consider a few questions. One, what are good works? What are good deeds? We're supposed to be careful to engage in them. What are they? Number two, what makes any work of ours good? Number three, why are good deeds necessary? So, what are good works? What makes any work of ours good? And why are good works necessary? And so, first of all, what are good works? 
The scriptures speak, obviously, of good works. Even people of the world speak of good works. But what are they? How do we judge? What standard do we use? Is the standard of measure supposed to be simply the intention of the doer? If their motive is good, then the result must be good. Is that the standard, or is there something that is a little bit more objective? Because some people might think that they're doing good works, while others who look on and observe them will say, well, no, that's actually, that's actually bad. And so who gets to decide whether a particular deed is actually a good work or a bad work? I think the 1689 London Baptist Confession is quite helpful on this point, where it says, good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. In other words, good works are the things which God has commanded us in his word and those things for which he has given warrant in his word. And a bit of reflection will will bear out the truth of this. The standard for what constitutes a good work has to be scripture, not simply what you or I happen to think is good. If the thing that constitutes a good work is simply the intention or perhaps the misguided zeal of the doer, there could be no end of absurdities. What some would consider good, others would think of as bad. People would then end up justifying all manner of wickedness by saying that they had a, they had a good goal. The end justifies the means, right? And Paul speaks of this in Romans 3.8, where people were accusing him of saying, let us do good that evil may come. And this is not Paul's mode of operation. And so the standard has to be the word of God. Otherwise, we would not only become advocates of works that are explicitly evil, but we would also stand in danger of burdening ourselves with extra-biblical requirements, which are actually not requirements at all. We would become subject to uh, what one man referred to as the tyranny of good ideas. I've got a good idea. Let's all do this. You have to do this just because I think it's a good idea. Well, show me the verse. Where's, Where's that in Scripture? Good ideas can be tyrannical. We would stand in danger then of doing what is actually denounced in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as though you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? That's what Paul's going for, is that these things are the commandments and teachings of men, not of God. He said these matters... These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-made abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so there are some things that we can think of or that people have thought of that have this appearance of, of wisdom, things which present themselves as holy. If you do this, this is a holy thing. This is a godly thing. This is a good thing. You can treat your body harshly. You can treat yourself harshly and say that you're doing it for the Lord and therefore you will be holy. Take, for instance, historically the vows of celibacy, becoming a monk or a nun, swearing off marriage and imagining that therefore you're living a more godly life than those who are married. But just because one imagines that he or she will be more holy by going beyond what Scripture requires does not make it so. 
Paul asks, why? Why are you still submitting to these man-made decrees? They have the appearance of wisdom, but they lack value. You think these extra-biblical requirements will make you holy? They will not. They do not. They do not serve to restrain the flesh, is what Paul says. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul refers to those who would burden consciences with man-made rules, forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from certain foods. And he says that these people who do this are paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Far from prohibiting the things that God has not prohibited, we must give thanks to God for what he has given to us and seek to use them appropriately. And so we read in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. And so the standard for what constitutes good works is the word of God. And this means that the law of God contained in Scripture is sufficient for instructing us in good works. We don't need to make new laws for ourselves, nor do we need to have others make new laws for us. God's word is sufficient for this, sufficient for Christian faith and the Christian practice. And his law is summarized, of course, in those two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your soul, and all of your mind. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. His law is summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, which we've been working through in our family catechism time. And obviously those summaries of the law have specific application in our lives from day to day. We touched on this briefly in the, in the family catechism time this morning in regard to the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. But as we saw in Mark chapter 7, Jesus expands upon this and expounds the commandment in such a way as to make it clear that part of honoring your father and mother is not just small children saying yes and obeying mom and dad, Part of that is adult children honoring and taking care of their parents in their old age, providing for them in their needs. We see also how Jesus applies the, the law in the Sermon on the Mount. We learn that the command against adultery extends beyond physical action to actually what takes place in our hearts. We see that the command against murder extends to, to anger and to the way that we speak to others. And so Christ applies the law to us. And so in order to devote ourselves to, to good works, as we're commanded to do here, we need to know the letter of the law as it is contained in Scripture and then actually seek to apply that to our lives day by day so that we may walk in these good works, so that we may know what is good and pleasing and acceptable in His sight. And just to, to put some, some feet on this, we can think of Jesus' very practical words in Matthew 7.12, where he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. The way to do good works is to treat other people the way that you yourself want to be treated. And this means that as we go throughout our day and interact with and interact with other people or take actions that will be affecting other people, we need to be thinking, if I were them, how would I want them to treat me? How would I want them to obey God's word as they relate to me? And then we need to act in accordance with that. And if we think and act in accordance with that, our actions are going to look a whole lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23. Love joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things will permeate our lives and our relationships and our interactions with others. These things are called, rightly so, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. They're the result of the Holy Spirit working within us. But at the same time, we are responsible to put these things into practice, to love our neighbors concretely by treating them the way that we ourselves want to be treated. Right? This is how we apply verse 8. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. But if we know ourselves at all, we will know that even as believers, we are very sinful. And if we look deep into our hearts and think about our motives and our, our, our thoughts as we even seek to do good actions, actions that are performed in obedience to God, we will know that these acts of obedience are not performed in the perfection of holiness. Far from it. If we look into our hearts, we'll see that even at our best, even at our best, our actions will often be take, undertaken in selfishness, or in pride, some form of vanity done for our glory rather than to the glory of God. Our best actions are not going to be performed so fully in love to God as they ought or in love to our neighbors as they ought. All of our actions in one way or another are going to be tainted by sin. Our condition is identical to that which one minister from olden times, uh, the way in which he described his condition. He said... If there be not a bitter root in my heart, whence proceeds so much bitter fruit in my life and conversation, alas, I can neither set my head nor heart about anything, but I still show myself to be the sinful offspring of sinful parents. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. Nay, I cannot so much as confess my sins. But my confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing, and the very washing of my tears still need to be washed over again in the blood of my Redeemer. I think that's me. My confession of sin is insufficient. My repentance, insufficient. Even at my best actions, whatever, whatever those would be, all far short. Isn't that you too? That brings us to the, the question of our second point. What makes any work of ours good? Right? Paul says those who have believed God are to be careful to engage in good deeds. But if all of our works, even as believers, even the best of them are contaminated with sin, how can they be regarded by God as good? Again, I think the 1689 Baptist Confession is quite helpful on this point, where it says, Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ Their good works are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And indeed, we read in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. God accepts the good works of believers. Scripture is clear about that. And we find the manner in which they are accepted in 1 Peter 2.5. 
You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our spiritual sacrifices and our good works are acceptable to God, not because of us, but through Jesus Christ. They are acceptable to God through him, and that is only if we ourselves are in Christ. And this is because it is only in Christ that our sins are forgiven, and only through Christ, therefore, that we are acceptable to God, and therefore our works can be acceptable to God, is through Christ. And this is why when non-believers actually do something that is outwardly good, it is not acceptable to God. We have to admit, by God's common grace, non-Christians do a lot that are outwardly good things. Sometimes non-believers stay sober, stay true to their marriage. They teach their children helpful things. Non-believers can be what we would call good neighbors, good police officers, good businessmen, good public servants, good employers, and good employees, and so on. But whatever honesty and hard work and patience and love and so forth they may demonstrate, that's riddled with sin. And what they do is not done to the glory of God, nor is it done for the love of God and for the love of neighbor. That being the case, and since they themselves are not accepted and forgiven by the grace of God through faith in Christ, all of their righteous deeds, whatever they may be, are but filthy garments, as we find in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Being outside of the grace of God, they are still slaves of sin. They're in the flesh and not in the spirit. And so we find in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The only way that our works can be considered as good is if God accepts them through Christ and mercifully forgives what is wrong with them. And the only way this is done is for us as believers, as those who are in Christ, who are justified and freely forgiven by him. Now that we've considered what good works are and how any works of ours can be considered as good, we need to consider the third question. Why are good works necessary? How to Work Catechism question 86 asks the question point blank. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? This is a perfectly legitimate and perfectly logical question to ask. And in a way, you might say it's the mirror image of the question that Paul asked in Romans 6.1, where he said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? After all, the gospel announces to us the good news that we're delivered from our sin and misery completely by the grace of God through Christ, in, in Christ alone, apart from any good works or any merits of ours. Romans 6.23 is true, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is by grace, eternal life is a gift. And you can see how someone might reason from that and just say, well, just get off my back about godly works and godly living. It doesn't matter what I do, whether I do good works or whether I go on in sins that grace may abound. Someone might be tempted to say that, but such a notion is very mistaken, very sinful. So we find in Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So why do good works? I think that answer to that question in the Heidelberg Catechism is quite instructive because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image. 
so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us, further so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and by godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. That's the answer right there. We've been redeemed by Christ from our sin and from our misery and given eternal life all by grace and not by works, which we have done in righteousness. Christ did all of this for us not so that we could be forgiven of our sins and then continue to wallow in sin and live in filthiness. Rather, as we saw back in chapter two, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify a people for himself who are zealous for good deeds. We're free now in Christ from the condemnation of God's law and we are free from viewing God's law as the terms upon which we may be acceptable to him right that's that's not what we labor under Galatians 3:10 is true all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse we're free from the law in those regards it doesn't condemn us and we don't live according to God's law to somehow try to make ourselves acceptable to him but nonetheless the law of God still is the rule of life for us we're still duty bound to obey But not only is obedience a duty, it should also be a joy to us. And thinking of what God has done for us through Christ, we obey out of gratitude. This obedience shows thankfulness. This is what the hymn writer Isaac Watts was getting at when he said, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. He looked at the gospel, Christ's great sacrifice for him, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life that he now has, and he recognizes... I've got to give my all to this God who has saved me like this. And this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 12.1 when he said, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is to be done out out of gratitude toward God. Not only do we show our thankfulness to God, by good works, but we also glorify and praise God by good works. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, he says in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. Or again, Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The good works of godly behavior glorify God. They point the eyes of unbelievers to the Lord, who has changed us and made us new. They encourage and edify other believers as well. And as such, our Good works lead others to give praise and give thanks to the Lord. And even when no one gives praise to God for our good works, they still bring glory to God, even when no one sees them. Because our good works mean that God's will is being done. And God is glorified when His will is done. And our good works also serve to strengthen our assurance that indeed we do have saving faith. Now, good works 
must not be our only source of Christian assurance. Other sources of assurance are our faith in the promises of God revealed in his word, the witness of the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts that we are the children of God, and then the desire and the actual doing of good works is, in addition to those things, another source of assurance. And so good works shouldn't be our only source of assurance. That shouldn't be the only thing that cues us off that we're a Christian, but they should be a source of assurance because godly fruit is a sign of spiritual life. And so Jesus speaks, Matthew 7, 17 and 18, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Similarly, he speaks, Matthew 12, 33 to 35, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And so in short, you could say that the, the fruit that you produce is a, is a barometer of sorts that indicates where you're at spiritually. If there are good works undertaken in faith in Christ for the glory of God and the love of God and the love of your neighbor, good works which are done according to the word of God, then that is a good sign of spiritual life. And again, this is not to say that our faith must be perfect or our motivations spotless in what we do in order for it to be reckoned as a good work in the sight of God. If we had to be completely sinless in our motivations and so on, there would not be any good works that are done by us in this life. But nevertheless, when we do those things that God has commanded for the glory of God while trusting in Christ, those things are good and acceptable to God and they testify to his gracious work within us And it testifies to us that we have received this washing of regeneration, that we are being renewed now by the Holy Spirit. It should be an encouragement to us and should strengthen our assurance of salvation, that we're actually in Christ if we're bringing forth these godly fruits. But then on the other hand, if there are no good works to be found in our lives, none at all, that should serve as a wake-up call for us. We can't just say, well, I'm saved by faith, I trust in Jesus, doesn't matter what I do. Oh, yes, it does matter what you do. Because if there is no fruit, there is no true faith. The Lutherans would express it this way helpfully in their formula of concord when they said many people dream up for themselves a dead faith or superstition without repentance and without good works as if there could simultaneously be in a single heart a right faith and a wicked intention to continue and abide in sin, which is impossible. Or if a person could have and retain True faith, righteousness, and salvation, even though he still is and continues to be a barren, unfruitful tree, since no good fruits appear. This is, to put it in more modern verbiage, the myth of the the so-called carnal Christian. The idea that one can have Jesus as Savior and be saved from their sins while simultaneously refusing to submit to Christ as Lord and lawgiver. And this is the exact thing against which James speaks so strongly. We read in James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And James's implied answer, of course, is, is no. That faith cannot save him. And then James rounds out that discussion at the end of James chapter 2 by saying, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. 
And that's the heart of the matter that, that James is pursuing there in James chapter 2. James is not saying that faith does not justify. Faith does justify, and faith alone justifies. But what kind of a faith? That is the crux of the issue. What kind of faith justifies? The faith that justifies is faith which, by grace, lays hold of Christ and receives Him, receives His righteousness, and receives every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that kind of faith saves, and that kind of faith will be evident that it has saved the one who has it. Because the one who has it will be fruitful in good works. And this is why Paul can say in Galatians 5, 6, after hammering very hard that we are saved by grace through faith. That's, that's the main point of the book of Galatians. But Paul says in Galatians 5, 6 that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. The good works that are performed will testify that the one who does them is righteous. The good works proclaim the presence of righteousness, but the good works do not in themselves bring righteousness. I think Francis Turretin summed it up quite nicely when he wrote, although we acknowledge the necessity of good works, we do not on this account confound the law and the gospel and interfere with gratuitous justification by faith alone. Good works are required not for living according to the law, but because we live by the gospel not as the causes on account of which life is given to us, but as the effects which testify that life has been given to us. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? The good works are not the cause by which we receive life. Rather, good works are required as showing the evidence that we have actually received life from Christ. We have received the righteousness of Christ, and that will be evident by righteousness and good works. And so, friends, we've spent quite a bit of time considering the issue of good works today. We've seen what they are. We've seen how they are to be performed. We have seen how good works can be performed by sinful people like us. And we have seen why we must do them. But we all need to recognize that apart from Christ, we are sinful and helpless. And what this means is that if you are apart from Christ this morning, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Him, you are, as of yet, still helpless in your sin. You're still enslaved to your sin. As things currently stand, you cannot please God at all. Your only hope is to turn to Christ in faith and to repent of your sins and believe in Him, to believe in Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to seek and to save what was lost, and to do so by dying on the cross and being buried and then being raised on the third day. The only way you can be saved from your sins and forgiven, the only way that you escape the judgment to come and receive eternal life is to trust in Him. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We'd be happy to explain this more to you. And for those of you who are in Christ, this means that we need to be Serious about engaging in good works, doing good works, obeying the Lord. Right? That is the call of our text, that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And we do this, again, not so that life will be given to us, but because life has been given to us. And as we seek to do good works, we need to remember this is not something that we can do in our own strength. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 88, Revive me, 
according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. We need life and strength and grace from the Lord if we would engage in good deeds. If you would bear the fruit of good works, you must abide in Christ as a branch abides in the vine, because apart from him we can do nothing. That being the case, let us keep close to Christ. Let's be strengthened each day by the Spirit, and then let's, those of us who have believed God, engage in good deeds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to understand more fully your great grace toward us in the gospel, how we are saved not by anything that we can do, but yet as those who have been saved. There's a great change that has taken place in us by the power of your Spirit so that we might render ourselves up for the good works of obedience. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do so. Help us to do it with joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.